Um, we just launched last week a series in First Timothy. We're looking at this new series and asking the question, Paul is writing to Timothy, giving instructions to Timothy as he takes leadership of a church and trying to describe for him what is essential as he steps into leadership. And we've been on a journey for the last two and a half years as a church growing from a place of unhealth into a place of greater health. And we're asking questions like, what's next? How do we continue to shape the church to be what God intends? it to be. And so we're looking at 1 Timothy and the instructions Paul gives to Timothy uh, and, and, and saying, okay, God, help us know what we need to do here as a group. Tell us what we need to do individually in order to be the kind of church that you want to have here. Um, if you were here last week, um, you know this. If you weren't, you can jump online and listen. Last week's mess is an introduction. So we looked at a lot of the background information uh, that, that is helpful for understanding the letter as a whole. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, jump online, get caught up, and then you'll have all the background information that we need. Today we're going to just continue, we we did the little introductory verses last week, so we're going to continue this week, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, we're going to read through verse 11, and we're going to ask the question, what does God want to say to our church today through Paul? So 1 Timothy chapter 1 starting in verse 3 says, As I urged you, Timothy, when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I think it's interesting that... So remember, he's been in Ephesus. He's been in Ephesus with Timothy. Paul has left. He's doing other work in another part of the country. Timothy is left behind. It's clear from the passage that there's some trouble in the church in Ephesus. Uh, We already know that there's a whole bunch of other gods. There's a temple to Artemis. There are competing ideologies in the city. You've got Jewish people. You've got Greek people. You've got a whole melting pot going on in this place. And here you've got this church that has been founded and established by Paul, but there are these people coming in that are bringing false teachings, they're fixated on what he calls myths and endless genealogies, and and Paul's encouragement to Timothy is, I know you want to run, I know this isn't fun, I know the things that people are saying are hard, trying to figure out how you're going to confront them and deal with it and correct it, how you're going to sort the mess that the church is in, I know it's not hard, but So Paul is pleading with Timothy, stay there. Um, I I said last week, I wonder why he has to urge him so strongly. On one side, I go, maybe maybe Timothy just misses Paul. 
right? Paul's this mentor, father figure, maybe just misses Paul. It's like, I just want to go jump with Paul, travel around the known world and, and be with my mentor. Maybe, maybe that's what he, he wants to leave Ephesus and Paul's saying, no, I urge you to stay behind. I think it's probably more to do with the fact Paul to the church carrying the apostolic mandate of Jesus to found the church and establish the teaching and Paul is gone And now he's going, I don't have the calling that Paul has. I don't have the the experience of Jesus knocking me off a horse. I wasn't entrusted with the administration of the mystery of the gospel and establishing the framework for the church throughout history. How on earth am I supposed to challenge the things that these people are saying when I'm just a young man starting out in this process of ministry? Um, Paul wants Timothy there because Timothy is steeped in Paul's way of thinking. He's steeped in Paul's theology. He's steeped in the way Paul runs church. He's steeped in Paul's lifestyle. And Paul is going, if there's anyone that can help correct and establish and strengthen the church there, Timothy, I urge you, stay behind. And so stay behind I'm going to give you some instructions on how to lead the church. I think it's so interesting where Paul decides to start. He decides to start with some instructions about church and about standing against these false teachers. So here's the simple reminder as we start today. What's the main theme of this whole passage in one sense? For those in the church who are leaders or for those who desire to have oversight in the church, it's the job of leaders in the church to guard the doctrine of the church, right? Straightforward. This is the job of leaders as we're in this season rebuilding our leadership in the church. Anyone being asked to step into leadership here is going to be charged with the responsibility of guarding the doctrine that we walk in. His, his words, command certain people, not everyone's teaching false things, command certain people not to teach false doctrines or to devote themselves to these myths and endless genealogies. A couple of things before we kind of look at what those words might mean or what's going on there. Paul understands a principle that I, I think we often forget. We say it, but we often forget it. Right belief leads to right action. If we are believing the right things, then we will do the right things. You can look at your life, you can look at any church, and if the actions are not right, if the fruit is not the kind of fruit that Jesus describes in Scripture, then you are not believing the right things. We don't go share the gospel with people because we, we wrestle with a thing inside. Well, if I tell them, they're not going to accept it. Right? So what's the point in sharing it? So my belief that if I tell them they're not going to receive it dictates my action. So I don't bother sharing the gospel. But if I believed what Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, that the gospel of God is the salvation for everyone who believes, that God wants no one to perish, that he has put the spirit in us to empower us to communicate the gospel. If we believe that, then we're not going to be put off by, oh, they're not going to believe the gospel. That confidence in the power of the word to transform will lead us out into the world to make a difference. What we believe impacts how we live. And so in your life, the areas where you are failing to live out the gospel is evidence of wrong belief. And it could be believing wrong things about who God is. It could be believing wrong things about what he requires us to do. 
A lot of the time, it's believing wrong things about who he's made you to be and how he's equipped you to function in the world. So Paul, when he's starting with Timothy and saying, it starts with making sure that we have the right doctrine and the right beliefs, Paul is reminding Timothy of of this principle that there's a whole bunch of things you're going to have to do in your your church, but if we don't believe the right things, then it's never going to get there. People in the church are, uh, and around the church are teaching wrong things and, and the letter to Timothy is not really clear about what these wrong teachings are. And we know they're teaching false doctrines. We know in this passage he's going to highlight what the purpose of the law is. So we can make some assumptions that there's some people that are Jewish background that understand some things about the law that are teaching the wrong purposes of the law. You've got people who are devoted to, I think it's interesting words, they've devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So they're creating stories and they're holding on to ancient stories about how the world was supposed to be, how the gods are functioning. They're fixated on genealogies. Let me just ask, how many people in here are like endlessly fixated on the genealogies of scripture? Okay, so it's not something that I really need to address in fullness here today, right? If, if, if you are, come talk to me. We can do it one-on-one. I will correct your doctrine. But, but what's going on? These Jewish people believe that salvation came through lineage to Abraham. So they're fixated on, like, well, you're a Gentile person. Well, at some point, you've got to have a line that gets you to some place that connects you to Abraham. Because without that, you can't be of the people of God. In that time period, there were people that were fixated on genealogies as having hidden messages, and that still happens today. If you count the number of people and you reverse the names and you flip them back to front, there's some hidden message from the Lord in there. Some people believe that by studying the genealogies, you could connect in to mythical figures that imparted to you secret knowledge, all sorts of nonsense. We listen to it and we go, well, that's ridiculous, Oh my goodness, the church in America is steeped in myths and endless genealogies. Oh, we love our conspiracy theories. I was reading some to Monica last night. I was like, I was like I'm not going to read them out because I don't want to offend the people in the room that believe them. Um, but I was reading some of these things and I was like, people actually believe this? People devote their time to like in Area 51, they're experimenting on aliens that they've hidden from all of the world since back, all all the way back then, was it the 80s Um, or 60s, when was it that that they think that was happening? All the Roswell stuff and people are like, they're, they're spending hours of their time researching articles, reading newspapers, finding one word phrases that might hint to the fact that this reality is going on. Um, We live in a culture that has created myths. Hollywood has created myths um, that that tell us a different way of living in the world. And there are things being taught to our teens and our kids that are fabricated ways of seeing the world and we buy into many of them. Um, There are strange theologies that we buy into in the church that tell us that our church is the only one that's doing it right and everyone else out there has has failed um, You know you're caught up in some myths and some endless genealogies if the end result of your faith journey in the U.S. is adherence to a political party. Because I'll tell you, Paul and Timothy weren't thinking about America. They weren't thinking about Republican and Democrat. They were thinking about how to minister to the community that they were in. Um, 
I, I, I look at things like QAnon and people in my life who spend hours of their time researching these documents that say there's this hidden group within the government that are Democrat headed by Hillary Clinton who are uh, controlling a pedophile and cannibalism ring that is controlling all of life in the US and across the world. And they believe it wholeheartedly. Um, we buy into when we when we look at something like and 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 I've got to be careful. So so give me grace as I say this statement. Let me finish. The election was stolen, but there's no evidence to prove it. And courts in the country are fining people for spreading lies. And yet, and it's not that we hold to a viewpoint or have skepticism about what's happening. We're allowed to be skeptical and it's wise to be questioning. But we sit in these places where we take something that is a myth that is being created. It may be based on truth. And then we start to fixate on it and we give our time and attention to it. And then we begin to promote the message All the while, the gospel is lying dormant in our life. No one has come to faith. The people in our life can't stand being around us. People think we're going crazy. We spend so much time, money, and energy and breath communicating things that we don't know if they're true or not. Meanwhile, this book that we know carries the word of life is not being spoken. So when Paul starts and he says, I command you to correct these people who are teaching false doctrine, I I instruct you to take the time to make sure people are standing on sound doctrine. The question to you is, how much of your life is built on sound doctrine and how much of your time is spent on myths and endless genealogies? If you ask people in your life, hey, what do I talk about most often? Are they gonna say, you talk about the way Jesus has transformed your life, his heart for the world. I love watching you weep over the brokenness in the world and the way that you're active and going out there to fight injustice. Or would they say, you grumble, you complain, you're bitter, you're caught up in conspiracy theories, you're caught up in your politics, you're caught up in uh, identity politics. Like, What would they say is the dominant thing that you find yourself talking about? Church leaders are to guard doctrine. So me and the leadership team here and anyone else that's called into leadership here has a responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church. We'll see in the rest of this letter, Paul is gonna say like, we should all be desiring leadership in the church, which means we should all be in a process right now of being trained to handle doctrine correctly. How do you know if the things you're believing are true? How do you know? We can read the Bible, right? So if you want to be someone of sound doctrine, like are you reading this thing from front to back to make sure you know it in its entirety? Are you reading more than one verse a day? You can read one verse a day as long as you're spending a lot of time meditating on it. But we get a lot of messages sent to us and thrown at us by the world. We need enough of this firm against the things that the world teaches us. I think one, one of the interesting parts when you think about sound doctrine, like it's easy to, what we're gonna do is we're gonna give a list of what's right and then we're gonna now be the police for the rest of the US and the rest of the church in the world to determine whether they're in it or not. And if they get it wrong, we're gonna stone them or cancel them 
cancel them from our conferences, we're going to tear them down, we're going to wreck their lives, fire them from their jobs. Um, so we can go into a place where it's like, this is right, and this is all that's right, and we're going to stand in a high and mighty place and judge everybody else, and not allow exploration and discussion and debate, or we can be so confident in the word of God that we can say, we can explore what other people view and listen to their, their arguments and, and understand them, but at the end of the day, the truth that's in here is always going to prevail. So one of the things, knowing the word is essential to sound doctrine. Knowing the word in community is even more essential to sound doctrine because you can read it on your own and you can create all sorts of fantastic explanations. Um, I have a group, uh, our leadership team, we've been reading through the Bible uh, book a week and making our way through cover to cover. I've got another group of people, Aaron Shelby Powell, we're meeting on Wednesday nights, reading the Bible cover to cover. Daniel has a group of people that are meeting right now, reading the Bible cover to cover. What I love about it is we're like, read Genesis this week. We read it, we get together. And the number of times someone's like, oh, I read this passage. And, it, and my brain went, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know that's not what the passage is about, right? You know that's not what it's saying. It's, it's okay, God can take us on rabbit trails out of scripture. And, and we can, it can spark something and it can convict our lives. But it's like, let's just remind ourselves what the passage is about. And if you ever have to teach this to someone, please say, I know this is not what the passage is about, but this is where God took me. Doing it in community helps us stay sound with our doctrine. The other piece, though, is if you have about how our faith operates. So eschatology, right? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. The world is going to pot, Right? If you believe that and you don't know how to articulate the other viewpoints, believe is true. And what we're really bad at in the church is we absorb one teaching about some aspect of theology and then we start teaching it and we get dogmatic about it. We never explore the rest. And then when someone is like, hey, I don't agree with you, we're like, no, you have to believe this or you're not a believer. You're going to burn in hell. Rather than, well, hey, let me explore some of these other viewpoints and what's the merits and is there any validity to this? And then you start reading through the Bible and going, ah, well, you know, yeah, I can see this in these passages. I can see this in these passages. Oh, maybe I was wrong. And sometimes you read through and you're going, no, it doesn't matter how much I study these other viewpoints. The Bible is really clear that this is the answer. So if we want to have sound doctrine, we've got to know the word. We've got to know the word in community and we've got to do the work to understand beyond our narrow framework so that we can know if what we're holding to currently is false or not. Now, in a church like this, the hope is that us, uh, me, along with the, the districts, we're part of a denomination that vets our theology. So they've put me through this process to make sure that I'm aligned with what the biblical truth is. And then we form a leadership team here and we together are exploring what God is saying. And so the hope is that when, when I stand up here and teach, that if I ever say something wrong, there are people in the district and people in our church that are gonna come and say, hey, I don't think what you said today was right. My hope is always that that will happen before I ever get up here. Um, but it's a communal discernment with the job of the leaders being guarding the doctrine of the church. And I, I've said, like, I care about preaching systematically through the Bible because I want you to see that the things that we're trying to teach and educate ourselves on are in here. So I could teach a message and ignore all of the Bible and tell you principles 
and, and, and then you'd, you'd be none the wiser. But the more times that we teach principles here and then we pour through the Bible, the more I'm hoping you will see that the things that we're leaning into are threaded from front to back of Scripture. So if you're a church leader, if you desire to be a church leader, one of the jobs here and one of the things that you will be held to is sound doctrine. The rest of the passage um, has little hints about how you can check in some other ways that your doctrine is sound. So I want to look just, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to look at three questions that the passage raises that help you assess if the doctrine that you are walking is accurate. Um, Are you walking in sound doctrine? So the first question that the passage raises is this. Does your belief advance God's work? So 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, he says, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So Paul is setting up a clear contrast. Where is your time and what's the fruit? Controversial speculation. So are you causing arguments? Are you spending a lot of time thinking through concepts and and world issues that are not producing the kind of fruit that he describes? Or is the teaching that you're focused on leading you to advance the work of God in your life and in the lives of people around about you? Is what you're believing advancing God's work? So there are millions of billions of people in the world who are dying without Jesus. There are thousands of nations and tongues that do not have the gospel in their own tongue that need people who are willing to leave the comfort of their home and risk their lives to go and take the gospel to people that don't have it. There are people in the houses around this church who are dying separated from Jesus. They do not have the gospel. Are the things that you're spending your time on, the news articles you're reading, the TV that you're watching, um, the theology that you're sitting in, is it mobilizing you to live out the Great Commission and lead people to Jesus? Or is it enabling you to sit passively and watch people die apart from Christ? Is what we're believing advancing God's work or not? And think about it in your own life. When was the last time you had a deep spiritual conversation with someone in your life that led them closer to Jesus? When was the last time you leveraged your resources to overturn injustice in the world? When was the last time you led someone to faith in Jesus? When was the last time you were uncomfortable because you gave up time that you didn't have to invest in someone younger than you's spirituality in order to make them strengthened in their faith? Are you caught up in controversial speculation or are you advancing God's work? And what does that reveal about what you believe? There's an interesting phrase in this passage where it says advancing God's work, oikonomian theo. So oikos is the Greek word for house. Oikonomia is the word for uh, like managing the household, stewarding, administrating, um, and and theo is the word for God. So, So what they've translated in the NIV is rather than advancing God's work, this phrase literally means managing the affairs of the household of God. Like, is the stuff that you're fixated on, mindless speculation, 
Or is what you're doing helping to administrate and, ad- and, and advance God's household and make it function properly the way it's supposed to here and as it goes out into the world? Are we leading to controversy or the advancement of the kingdom? If you want to know the answer to that, ask your kids if you have them. Ask your work colleagues if you don't have kids. Like, am I leading you to Jesus or am I a person that's stuck in controversy and see what they have to say? Don't respond, just listen. Second question. First one, does it advance God's kingdom? Second one, does it produce love? With qualifiers. Paul says, I'm giving you this command, correct these false teachers. He says, the goal of this command is love, agape, the unconditional love of God, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these. They've departed from the sound teaching, but they've departed from a pure heart. They've departed from good conscience and they've departed from sincere faith. They want to be teachers, There's people in this room who want to be teachers, but you don't know what you're talking about. You're not living the things that you so confidently affirm. There is a type of teaching that brings judgment rather than love. That doesn't mean we can't set boundaries. The Bible is a whole story of God establishing boundaries and humans transcending them. Love, true love, requires boundaries. One writer, I just love the way he worded this. He says, agape is not an abstract rule of life. It is the principal characteristic of a congregation's life together. Love. There's a type of teaching and a type of relationship to the law of God that looks like the Pharisees who found a woman in adultery and the result was, let's gather everyone together and stone her. And Jesus says, The one who's without sin cast the first stone and they slowly, one at a time, walk away. Are you the kind of person that looks more like a Pharisee ready to stone the people who are not living the way that we think they should? Or do you look more like Jesus when he's looking at Jerusalem saying, whoa, Jerusalem, you're you're like a sheep without a shepherd. And he breaks down and weeps over the city because the brokenness of the nation. Does the teaching that you walk in lead to love or does it lead to condemnation? Do you look more like a Pharisee in the things that you're believing or do you look more like Jesus who is broken for the needs of the city? Uh, You may not look like a Pharisee. You may look on the opposite end of the spectrum like someone that would worship in the temple of Artemis. It's like, it doesn't matter. Anything goes. Do whatever you want. You have ultimate freedom. God's standards don't matter And you teach a different kind of heresy that is fully libertarian and completely ignores and transcends all of the boundaries that God says. Or do you look like Jesus that says, you know, they've said don't commit adultery. I say if you're even looking at someone with lust, you're as bad as an adulterer. They've said don't murder, but I say if you're harboring anger, you're a murderer. Like are are we holding in love the boundaries that God calls us to? And are the that we're doing leading to deeper love. There are those three qualifiers to this love, just so that you know that I'm not making this up. This love comes from a pure heart, 
a good conscience and sincere faith. So what does he mean? A heart is being qualified here by the word pure. Heart in Jewish thought, so the Hebrews and the Jews there, they look at heart as the center of all of life. That's why they can say that uh, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. The heart is the place where everything flows. Jesus will say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've said this before, right? If you want to see the condition of your heart, pay attention to the overflow that comes out of your mouth. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words give a good indication of the condition of your heart. So this is a love that comes from the center of your being. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and and Jesus describes it to the woman of the well as the spring of eternal life that flows out of us. Romans 5.5, Paul talks about the the Spirit, uh, God has poured his love into our hearts by his Spirit whom he's given us. Love has been poured out here. The fruit of the Spirit, love inside of us that pours out as love of God and love of people. But he qualifies it by this word, pure. It's not enough to just have a heart that loves people. It's got to be pure in the sense of how the Bible describes purity. No sin. Love of God at the center. Adherence to the law. And all that he's laid out in the commands of scripture. Is your heart pure? Is your heart chasing the things of the world? Is your heart pure? Are you looking at pornography and chasing after other people? Is your heart pure? Or is it filled with bitterness and anger and greed and resentment and pride and all of the things that we talked about in the series on vices? Love needs to come from a pure heart. So you've got to take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's, right? Is your heart pure? Because sound doctrine from a pure heart will result in love. He then goes on to talk about a good conscience. Heart is a word that's at the center of Hebrew thought. Conscience is at the center of Greek thought. So you're in the Greco-Roman world at this time in this part of the world. So in Greek thought, conscience was central to how things function. So in Romans, Paul is going to say, you Jews, you care all about the law and you're getting it wrong. And then he looks at the, the Gentile people and he's like, but is your conscience clear? There are these two systems that are governing our behavior. So for the Gentile people, conscience was important. At the time that Paul is writing this, there are moral teachers trying to educate people on how to live as good citizens. And the whole concept of conscience was central. What is your conscience permitting or not permitting? The trouble is, today our view of conscience is distorted. Right? The hardness of our heart means that we... Uh, we ignore our conscience when it convicts us of things. The messaging from the world has changed our views of what is right and wrong. Uh, and, and the way people treat us when we act certain ways means that we feel a guilt and a shame around having some kind of conscience. But it's not enough to be a conscience. Paul describes it as a good conscience. What is goodness in the Bible? It's a core attribute of who God is. It describes a certain standard of living in the world that aligns with what God wants us to do. So is your heart pure? Are your motives pure? Is the center of your being pure? Is your conscience good? Is it functioning in accordance with God's will the way it should? And is it clear? When you said that thing, was it done? I've said this before. My, my kids used this phrase with me once. Did you do that for mean, for nice or for mean? And it's like, sometimes there's things that I say and I realize after the fact, I didn't say that for nice. I said that for mean. My conscience was not clear. So that, was, that might have been good teaching. 
but it wasn't coming with a good conscience. The last qualifier, do you have a pure heart? Do you have a good conscience? Do you have sincere faith? Faith is such a rich word in the New Testament. There's three kind of broad brush strokes of how we describe faith. One is trust. So I have faith in my leadership team to lead effectively. I trust them. So faith in God is do you trust him? That's one element of faith. Another element of faith, that, and this is a lot in Paul's writing, is the, the doctrines that we believe, like our faith in Jesus. Like, what, Are you holding to the faith? Do you have the pattern of right teaching that you're holding to? And then the last one is faith in action. A lot of the times they'll translate it as faithfulness. So like, am I doing the things I'm supposed to be? Am I living in harmony with God? Am I honoring his word? When Paul here is saying sincere faith, most commentators believe he's talking about all three at once. A real genuine trust in God and what he's doing. An adherence to this system of beliefs that Paul has been responsible to lay out for the church, resulting in faithful living as you worked out into the world. Robert Wall, who's a a pastoral scholar, um, writes on the pastoral epistles, he describes sincere faith as single-minded affirmation of God's way of ordering reality. Single-minded affirmation of God's way of ordering reality. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. What orders reality for you? Who gets to dictate how the world should be ordered and how things should happen? Are you double-minded or are you single-minded? Are you walking in sincere faith, submitting yourself to this book and what it teaches as God's revelation of how the world should be ordered? There's one more phrase in this this part of the passage that I love. And uh, King James, so you see um, some have departed from these and turned to meaningless talk. The King James has the best translation of the phrase meaningless talk. They translated it as vain jangling. Some have moved away from pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith to just vain jangling. And I think of that in two ways. I think about keys just being rattled around, like at the mercy of whatever force is rattling them around. The other part that comes to mind is Paul and Corinthians. If I speak the tongue of men or of angels, but I don't have agape, I'm just a clanging symbol. Is, has our teaching in the church being reduced to vain jangling instead of in people who are communicating the words of life. How much of your speech is advancing the work of God and how much of it is just making a noise? Final question. Does it conform to the gospel? Do the things that you believe conform to the gospel? This is the litmus test of everything that we do in this church, everything that the church should do in the world, the way we meet Does it conform to the gospel? The way we're vulnerable with one another, does it conform to the gospel? The way we live as leaders, does it conform to the gospel? The things we teach, do they conform to the gospel? The relationships we build out there, do they conform to the gospel? Does our teaching cause our life to line up with the standards of the Bible and the call that the gospel puts on us? And what's that call? We are sinners. 
We are broken. We have turned from God. We've rejected him. We need Jesus. There is no way to deal with our sin and rebellion apart from him. And what does Jesus do? He calls us to come to him, to leave the things of the world behind and to follow in his way. Does the stuff that we're doing lead us to that place? Paul, to describe this, gives what they call historically a vice catalog. Again, it's what we did with the last series, right? We looked at a catalog of vices. So Paul, to help show the futility of the people and what they're teaching, describes this catalog of vices. So what he's not doing is picking out, these are the 10 or 11 most important sins that we need to deal with. He's picking a broad cross-section of the brokenness of the people in the community and in particular, the lives of the people teaching and the fruit of their teaching to say, look at this brokenness. This is the evidence that these people are not teaching stuff that's in accordance with the gospel. So look at the, the vice catalog and I've, I've broken it up and, and reorganized it in, on purpose, just putting out the pieces because these are a lot of the time paired together. Lawbreakers and rebels. So what's he saying? The law is good. The law exists to point out our sin. It doesn't save us, but it shows us where we're wrong. So people that are lawbreakers who, who don't, who, the people who break it and the people who actually deliberately rebel against it, like they need the mercy of God. The ungodly and the sinful who are not living up to God's standards and keep getting it wrong. The unholy and irreligious. Um, what is going on here, um, most commentators acknowledge this, he is actually walking through the Ten Commandments. So what are the Ten Commandments? You will have no other gods but me but there are lawbreakers and those who rebel against my command and against me. The ungodly and the sinful. Second command, don't use the Lord's name in vain. You're going against the way God intended things to be and so you're full of ungodliness and sin. The unholy and the irreligious. What's the third commandment? Keep the Sabbath day holy. These people are unholy and irreligious and not honoring the things that God has established. Fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. Those who kill their father and mothers. Number five, don't kill the murderers. Number six, don't commit adultery, the sexually immoral and those practicing homosexuality. Number seven, don't steal the slave traders. I think the better word here would be the the traffickers. Those who are stealing people And stealing their freedom is the worst version of of theft. Um, Don't bear false witness, the liars and the perjurers. And last one, don't covet anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine, that doesn't conform to the gospel. Paul is looking at the people in the culture round about him and he's taking dominant issues that he's seeing that are breaching the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, this is the result of a lack of sound doctrine. And he's not saying, so these people are are done for, so judge them, stone them, kick them out. He's saying, we need the gospel. And we'll see next week. He's gonna go on after this passage to talk about, so here's the list of sins I'm giving you. Well, I'm the worst. So this is not him standing on judgment on people, but, um, but pointing out brokenness that can come when we're not standing in sound doctrine. Does the things we teach conform to the gospel? Does it lead people in their brokenness to come to faith in Jesus? Does it cause us to walk in repentance, laying our sin down and coming to him for wholeness?
So how are you doing at sound doctrine? Are you, are you fighting for sound doctrine? Are you caught up in conspiracy theory and whatever goes mentalities? Do the things you teach advance the work of God in, through your life? Are they producing greater love for God and people in your life? Are they conforming your life and the lives of the people that you're ministering to, to the gospel? And then this is the invitation as a church. Your job is to keep us as leaders accountable to doing what our job is of guarding the doctrine of the church. And so you get to look at those things and say, are the things that we're doing advancing the work of God through this church into our city? Are the things that we're teaching here increasing our capacity to love him and others or promoting greater judgmentalism and bitterness and resentment? And are the things that we're doing making our lives and the life in the community look more like the gospel or are we teaching something else? So my invitation to you, steep yourself in the word, steep yourself in community, fight for sound doctrine and please, as part of this church, hold us accountable as we stand under God, under his word, under the denomination, under our leadership to try and teach what is right so that our right belief will lead to right action in the world. Um, so let me pray. God, uh, this, this stuff is hard. <laughs> God, it, it's hard to, to look at ourselves, and there, there's so much work required um, to align ourselves with the gospel. There's so much work required to know the word. There's so much work required to understand good teaching. Um, and so God, we need help because we're busy and we're distracted and sometimes we're sleepy. Sometimes we just don't want to. And so God, we know that understanding your truth helps us live it right in the world. Lord, we know understanding your truth helps us purify our heart and clean our conscience and be more sincere in our faith so that we can be more effective as we go out in the world. So God, as we embark on this series and we try and conform our church to the model of scripture, God, may we be rooted in sound teaching. Uh, May we advance your work May we be filled with love and may we look more like the cross of Christ, we pray. Amen.